for nine and a half chapters, at least as broken up by our copies of God's Word, we have been seeing the author of Hebrews give us this bigger vision of who Jesus is. And the intent of that bigger vision is so that we would not lose heart, that we would not give up in our faith, but continue to press on. And over the past few chapters, we have been seeing the writer of Hebrews reveal to us how Jesus is the son that we need, how he is the help that we need. He brings the rest that we need. He is then also the priest that we need and has established the covenant that we need. And now at the end of chapter 10 through chapter 12, what the writer of Hebrews does is gets very practical. And he starts describing now, here's what the faith that you need looks like. Here's what you should do with all of the work that he has been expressing over these past few chapters. Here is the faith that God would want us to have as not only a saving faith, but to recognize this is the kind of faith that is able to endure through the difficulty. Able to endure during the hardships, the times when we are pressed down and we are thinking about giving up. Here is the faith you need. So that's what we're going to be looking at then this morning. And from verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10 through verse 31, he is going to simply describe the kind of heart that we're supposed to have. The kind of heart that would exhibit then this kind of faith. And and I want you to notice, as was just read for, for us, from verse 19 through verse 21, that is perhaps a summary of everything that he has said for nine and a half chapters. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, here is him just saying, now let's just pull together everything that we've worked on, that the impossible has occurred. And I hope you sense that when you read those three verses. The impossible has occurred. You have confidence to enter into God's presence. Now we spent a lot of time in the book of Hebrews talking about nobody ever had that. Nobody went into the presence of God. Not any of Israel did. The priest did not. Only the high priest once a year. And none of them went in with confidence. And that is the picture that's given here. Since we have confidence to enter into the very presence of God. That rather than walking into this heavenly tabernacle and finding a curtain that prevents us from being in God's presence. We come and the curtain is Jesus. And through Him we're able to enter into the presence of God. But that's preaching the past nine and a half chapters. He's been working all of that. Since you know that, is what he says in verse 19, since we have all these things, since you understand all of these amazing benefits of the Son, the High Priest, the Covenant, and the help that we have, then here's what's supposed to happen. Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Notice that he begins by talking about we can approach with this assurance of faith. You have the assurance, the confidence to come into God's presence. But notice what the confidence is. The confidence is deriving from the fact that not only is Jesus our great high priest who has passed through the heavens and has made his sacrifice on our behalf and giving us the covenant that we need to enter, but notice there's a means by which we need to approach. And his beginning point of how we need to approach is with sincere hearts. That's the starting point. You must approach God with a true heart, a sincere heart. The rest of everything that we will read, not only today, but the rest of the book of Hebrews, is absolutely worthless and of no value to you if you are not coming to God with a sincere heart. The rest doesn't matter. We could go on about all the other verses, but this is the start point right here. God has done all of this work for us. And Jesus has accomplished everything on our behalf. And what we see throughout the scriptures as always the starting point is a sincere, contrite, dedicated heart to God. That is what God wants. If we are going to move forward in faith and be in a relationship with God and be with what God wants us to be in this relationship, it must then begin with this sincere heart. Uh, It's so easy to forget that motivation is everything to God. It is something that Israel lost. Israel lost that. As they continue to perform the rituals and the sacrifices and keep the feasts and do the various works as Jesus would even condemn the Pharisees as they're, yes, keeping tithe and mint and various rules, but you are neglecting the other things like justice and love. Same picture here. Motivation is everything. And essentially then, if we do not have hearts that are cut for the Lord after seeing all that God has done. Just think about what He's done. If our hearts are not cut after thinking and meditating and reading about everything that Jesus has accomplished for us by the will of the Father, then there's nothing that's going to open that stubborn heart. There's nothing. This is the great act that God has accomplished to open the hearts of people. And if our approach to God is not in sincerity, if it's not an approach of desire toward Him, of care for Him, and coming to Him with that desire, don't bother reading the rest. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Sincere hearts is what God is looking for. Hearts that are cut. Hearts that desire Him above all else. Let us then approach, he describes there in verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart. 
with a true heart. With that kind of heart, there is the assurance that we can walk into the very presence of God. With that heart, then, he describes more about the approach in verse 22 when he says that our hearts are sprinkled clean. A a really neat image. Especially because throughout the Old Covenant, in that first covenant that God made with Moses, you read about sprinkling all the time, the sprinkling of blood. There's blood sprinkled on all kinds of things. In fact, earlier in the book of Hebrews, you see the writer of Hebrews talking about how everything is purified by blood. And there is the blood being sprinkled upon articles that are in the tabernacle. We see even the blood being sprinkled upon the people in Exodus 24. That is this imagery of purification. And now here is the imagery move forward to us. That it's not just simply an external sprinkling that has happened. But here is God cleansing your very hearts. Hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. The Apostle Peter would describe it similarly when he spoke of baptism in 1 Peter 3.21 and described it as an appeal to God for a good or clean conscience. Asking God to cleanse the heart. Asking God to cleanse our lives. Which if you remember earlier in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, he made the point that even though the sacrifices were being made, it did not cleanse the hearts of the worshipers. But every year as they would do these sacrifices, remembrance of their sins again and again. And now there's a sacrifice that has happened that cleanses the heart. That cleanses guilty consciences. We should just be blown away by that. If I had time to do Hebrews for like years and years with you and just make a whole sermon out of that phrase right there. You know, just think about the idea that the guilt and the weight and the burdens of your former sins are cleansed by God. You now have the sacrifice that you need. And you have the covenant that you need. And what makes this covenant extremely different from the prior one was they had a remembrance of sins year after year as they would offer a sacrifice every day and every week and every month and every year. And we live under such a privilege because of the once for all sacrifice of Jesus that we have sometimes even forget because there's not the repetition that existed in the first covenant. There is a beauty here of understanding that God is trying to communicate to us is that the weight of your sins have been dealt with. The guilt can be erased. Your sins have been nailed to that cross. And here is the picture of that. When you come to God with sincere heart, truly a heart cut seeking God, here is God who is cleansing hearts. He is cleansing consciences. He is dealing with those sins. That's what Jesus has accomplished for us. And the picture continues in verse 22 when He says, "...and our bodies washed with pure water." I think it is way too shallow of a picture for us just to read that and go, and you've been baptized. That's not in play right here. That is too shallow of a reading. Especially when it says that your bodies have been washed with pure water. We, we, this water's not pure back here. It is not that. It is just regular old water. There is something bigger that is being pictured than that. 
Something far more dramatic that is being imaged for us in this picture. That not only are the hearts sprinkled clean, but that changes the very expression of everything we do in life. Now the bodies are also in tandem with the heart. The heart is clean. The heart is sincere. And that leads to bodies that are clean and active in obedience to God. In fact, this is exactly what Ezekiel prophesied would happen where you read about pure water. Listen to what Ezekiel prophesied. I love this prophecy. Here's God speaking. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. I would dump that all into what we just read in this verse 22 of Hebrews 10. You come before God in a sincere heart. Here is God saying, I will sprinkle the clean water on you and I will sprinkle your hearts and I will cleanse you inside and out. And friends, that's the ultimate idea of what baptism is symbolizing. Don't get stuck and just say, and you were baptized. No, the symbol of baptism, what you are expressing in that, that God is cleansing hearts and cleansing lives and the guilt of sin is erased and the record of debt against me is erased and I am proclaiming before God, I have a new heart, a new life. I am ready to serve Him fully and I am desiring His will. That's what you're saying in that. That's what's happening at that moment is God is cutting away sins. You are coming to Him and saying, let's go. Let's serve Him. I desire Him inside and out. Cleansed heart, pure body. The whole thing is completely given over to God. Beautiful picture of what Ezekiel said was going to happen. This is a messianic promise. Back out in the future when his people exist, he is going to sprinkle them clean so that they will obey. And notice the writer of Hebrews is doing the same thing. With sincere hearts we come before God. With our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience, bodies washed with pure water. The imagery of what all of this is about in our submission before God as we give our lives to Him inside and out, body and soul. This is exactly the motivation and the very heart that God wants. And that's the expression of what the New Testament is describing in baptism. Don't you know? I love those passages like in Romans 6 and describing. Here's what's happened. Colossians 2. You have the sins of the flesh cut off. Now you've experienced the circumcision of God so that you have a clean, pure heart before God. That's what the writer of Hebrews looks at here. This is how we come before God. The second picture is in verse 23. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I have submitted to you that that is the point of the whole book. (laughs) The point of the whole book stands right here in this sentence. 
Hold on to your confession without wavering. You have a hope and I do not want you to give it up. And the reason you should not give up on your hope is because God is faithful to you. God keeps His promises. He keeps His word. He always does what He says. And here He says, you can come with sincere hearts into the very presence of God and He will wash those dirty hearts clean. And He will cleanse the evil conscience and He will make you pure in His sight and bring you into that relationship. And so therefore, don't give up because your suffering and your sacrifice is going to be worth it. Don't fall back. Don't give up now. Don't give up your faith now. Don't turn back now. Don't rebel now. Because God has promised. That's why I love verse 23. He who promised is faithful. God has promised. And He is faithful. Your hope is absolutely not empty. You have a reason for hope. And you hold on to that hope. And if I could say it this way. Our faithfulness to God is the only appropriate response for God's faithfulness to us. Uh, What else should we do before God who has gone the extra mile in being faithful to us? In giving Himself for us, in giving us the Son we need, in giving us the covenant we need, the sacrifice that we need, and all that we need up to this point. What other response is there but our faithfulness to Him? And so we come before Him with sincere, true hearts that have been sprinkled clean from the evil conscience. The bodies washed with pure water, hearts of obedience before God. That then says before God, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to stay with you to the very end. That we have a heart like Peter when Jesus says, do you want to go? And we would say, where are we going to go? Where else is there to go? You have the words of eternal life. Where am I going to go? Don't send me here. Go anywhere else. This is the place to be. We will hold fast to that faith and hold on to that hope without wavering. And then verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I want you to be struck by something that it says there. Notice that the third one is not, and let us love and do good works, which is true. We have to do that. But that's not what it says. He says, okay, let us approach with sincere hearts. Let us have our bodies washed with pure water. Let us have our hearts sprinkled clean. Let us hold fast to our hope without wavering. And let us consider how to motivate others to love and good works. Not just, and you do love and good works, but here's what I want you to do. When you get together, you have a purpose. And I'm afraid we probably forget this purpose. The purpose of our coming together is for each one of us to think about how am I going to motivate the other people in this room to love and good works? That's why you're here today. I hope that's why you're here today. That's why God says you're here today. You are not here today for you. 
Did you notice that he didn't say that here? Sometimes we turn church and worship into, what am I going to get out of it today? You know, everybody brings their judging cards and the sermon that was an eight, that was a seven, that one didn't hit me very much. Oh, that one really changed my life. You know, we, we were singing, oh, that was really something today. You know, we make it so consumer self-driven. It's all about me and how I feel. And notice God didn't say that. God did not say, you come here and you think about you. Which we should have caught that from last week's lesson about a cross attitude, right? It ain't about us. You come together and I want you to motivate others to love and good works. Which I hope changes everything about this command, even though this has probably been preached 1,000 infinite times. As a, you need to go to church. And I'll just back that up back to verse 22 and say, if your motivation is you have to go, you might as well go ahead and walk out now. Because God doesn't care about your insincere heart. It doesn't matter to Him. God wants sincere hearts. And I want you to notice that it's not a command that you need to go to church, but understand what you're doing when you're here. There are people here who need your encouragement. I've been at this long enough, can I say it that way, long enough to know that every time we get together, there are people who are on the brink of their faith collapsing. Every time. Now it's different people at different times. It's not the same person for the last 20 years. But on a given week, from whatever has happened in their lives, and whatever Satan is throwing at them, and whatever pains and challenges there may be to walk in the Christian faith, there is always, always somebody some bodies who need encouragement because their faith is on the brink. And what we don't realize is, you know, none of us come in with that sign on our head that says, I need your encouragement today because it's been a really bad week. (laughs) What we have the tendency to do is the opposite. We come into the room and what we want to do is pretend we are Superman Christian. I mean, these last seven days, I've rocked it, and so have you, right? We just, you know, Satan was was just easy, you know, trials of life, nothing. We are crushing Christian life. That's For whatever reason, we seem to want to express that aura to people, you know. We, we, no, we've got this. How are you doing? I'm great, you know. No, no, I'm, I'm you know, I'm fantastic. It's often not that openness. And so in light of that, I just want you to realize people can say all the right things and look like they're doing so well in their faith and have no idea on the inside what's going on. And that's why he says here it is so important that we consider how to motivate one another to love and good works. Which means we need these times together. 
It is interesting that he's picturing our worship gatherings, our gatherings and our studies, that these assemblies that he's describing here. And he's saying, now the reason I don't want you to neglect them is because, believe it or not, not only do you need it as much as anybody, but I do too. So does that one and that one and that one and that one and that one. Everybody in the room needs this. Everybody needs everybody encouraging each other to love and good works on a regular basis. There's not a single person in this room who has not been pressed to the point of wanting to give up. There's not a single person in this room who has not had those thoughts cross their mind. Is this worth it? Can I keep going? Can I continue to obey? Can I continue to serve? Maybe this isn't for me. Because everybody else in the room looks like they've got the perfect life. We all know that's not true. We need to encourage one another and, and bring that about in one another. We need that kind of encouragement. Which leads to verses 26 through 31. He really shows why this is critical. Look at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Why is it so important that we approach with true hearts? Why is it so important that we hold on to our hope without wavering? Why is it so important that we consider how to motivate others to love and good works? He gives the picture here because if we turn, if we throw this off, if we just say, I'm not going to do this. Notice what he describes there. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That was probably one of the more heartbreaking thoughts I could ever conjure. The book of Hebrews has driven us to encouragement. How much God cares about us, how much God has has done for us, that we would be able to have confidence in the face of our sins. And yet there is really one scenario by which hope is lost. And that scenario is willfully turning from God. You have received the knowledge of the truth, is what he says in verse 26. You know, and you willfully choose otherwise. And notice how strong he is. No longer a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and also a fury of fire. It seems almost out of place in a book that's all about encouragement. But notice the point of it is to say, do you understand why we need to be motivating each other to love and good works? Why we need to spend this time together and do that in our worship? Why you need to hold hold on to your faith without wavering? Because here's what the alternative is. The alternative is not, oh, well, you know, they're just choosing to live their own life and go their own way. It is no longer a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. 
And what's interesting is the way he words the rest of this. It's almost like he says, let me prove that to you because I know that just hits you in the face. So he says, let me prove it to you. Verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. He just reminds them. And if you have been with us on Sunday nights, you have seen this reminder vivid week after week after week. What happens if you willfully reject the law of God? Judgment. That's the book of Numbers, the book of Exodus, the book of Deuteronomy. We have seen that again and again and again. We just started Joshua. We're going to see it a bunch of times in Joshua too. Under the first covenant, under the law of Moses, a person who rejected God's law died under the weight of the witnesses. Verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by with which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? You notice how he proved it? He says, okay, now I want you to understand If we walk away from God, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. Fearful expectation of judgment. Now let me prove it. It goes back to the first covenant. What happened with Israel when they did that? Death. They were done. See that over and over again. Whole generation dies in the wilderness for rebellion. Verse 29. How much worse... And notice the descriptions of what God sees our rebellion as. Trampling the Son of God underfoot. We don't look at it that way, right? I'm just doing what I want to do. I'm just living my life. I'm just being me. Here's God. He says, here's what you're doing. Number one, it's like our Lord and Savior is laying on the ground and you are walking all over Him. Trampled him underfoot. You're just He's nothing. He's like carpet. And you're just walking. Useless. Irrelevant. Trampled him under. Second image. Treating the blood of the covenant as basically nothing. This whole covenant that God has established through the blood of His Son so that we can approach Him, that we can have the access that nobody has ever had before in the past, that we could boldly come into the presence of God and find grace and help to, in our time of need. Here is God saying, I am giving you everything you need. And what our response to God is, is... Eh. Whatever. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter that he died for me. Doesn't matter he established the covenant I need. Doesn't matter he's there for the help that I need. Doesn't matter that he's done any of these things. We count the blood of the covenant as profane, common, meaningless, whatever, insignificant. And the third image that he gives to us. You've insulted the Spirit of grace. Here is all the grace and mercy that God has shown to each one of us. 
let's 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 just go to okay if god wiped people out for sins would any of us be here right now (laughs) all right empty room right i'm not here you don't have a preacher (laughs) and i don't have an audience (laughs) we're all done Here is the grace of God. And God says, you're just insulting that. You're just insulting that. You're saying, who cares? Who cares that God has been faithful? Who cares that God has been gracious? Who cares that God has loved? Who cares that God has carried me through? This is the picture that He is describing for us and giving us this imagery. How much worse punishment do you think if we do this? This is what our rebellion is to God. If we walk away from the faith, if we walk away from what God says, here's in essence what we are doing. Trampling the Son of God underfoot, counting the blood of the covenant as insignificant, common, and useless, and insulting the grace that has been expressed to us by His Spirit. We're saying we don't care. And that's why there would be a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that consumes the adversary. Verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We must care what God has done for us. We have to care. If we don't care, this is the outcome. This is the complete outcome. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, here's the good news. How did this whole paragraph start? I just want your sincere heart. He didn't start off with, now I want you to live perfectly and do all of these things. Okay, when, once you finish these one million things, then I'll accept you. Just approach me with a true heart. Be real. End the hypocrisy. Enough of the double-mindedness. Enough of being fake. Either you're in with God or you're not. Either you're doing what he says or you're not. Either you care about what he says or you don't. I want a sincere heart. I want hearts that are cut by his law, cut by his word. And that's what he starts with. That's your beginning point. A heart that is moved by the fact that Jesus has died for you, that Jesus is the son that we need, that brings the covenant that we need, offers the rest that we need. He does all of these things for us. Be moved by that. God wants that heart. That's why you'll see God express, oh, for a heart that they would have, that they don't have. Israel failed that. God wants that heart, number one. Number two, don't give up. Don't quit. Don't give up. Hold on to that hope without wavering because God is faithful. Don't quit. 
Don't give up. When you get it in the face tomorrow with the difficulties of life and Satan comes after you and temptations and the trials are just overwhelming you like a tidal wave, don't give up. Don't lose heart. God's faithful. Hold on to your hope. Number three, think about what you're going to do to motivate other people. Because you might be on top of the ball today, but somebody else in the room is being rolled under the ball today. What can I say to encourage love and good works in somebody else? What can I do to encourage love and good works in the other person? Our conversations just need to be filled with that. We're going to get like, you know, what, 10, 15 minutes here in a minute. And then tonight, beforehand, afterward, minutes here and there, just a few minutes. What can we say that's going to encourage love and good works? Not what I'm going to get out of it. How am I going to infuse love and good works in other people? What am I going to say to them here in a minute that will help them get through this next week? So that they will have faith and hold on to their hope and not lose heart. Because God is giving us a very serious warning. If we have a heart that desires sin over God, there's no sacrifice for sins. There's nothing but judgment. All that God asks is for a heart that desires Him above choosing sin. He will cleanse your heart. You give your life to Him. We'll encourage you along the way. That's the picture of what's given here. Can we help you in that walk? Can we help you in that process? Before we sing a song, let's pray to God for a moment. Our Heavenly Father, We are keenly aware of how difficult it is, how difficult life can be, how the attacks of Satan with temptations can feel just simply relentless, how the trials of this life can just seem to bring us to the breaking point. Lord, I pray that we could all have greater strength and a greater courage to stand with you. Lord, we believe and help our unbelief that we would be stronger in a faith to hold on to you at all costs. That our love for you would be above all else. And that we would see eternity as worth every bit of difficulty and sacrifice that we may face in this life. And Lord, I pray not only for our own personal encouragement, but I pray that we could be better encouragers of each other. That we would spend our time together looking for a way to motivate each other to a deeper love for you. Deeper love for each other. 
and to spur on the good works that you have called us to do in righteousness because of our love for you. We pray, Lord, that we come before you with sincere hearts. If our hearts are not sincere, Lord, open our eyes to see it. Show us our double-minded ways. Show us our divided hearts so that we would be aware of how we are pulled away from you and that we could rip that unbelief out of our lives. And those who are struggling now, we pray for your courage in their lives, that you would hold them up and give them the strength that they need to serve you in the days ahead. And may we be the spiritual encouragement that we need to give to those around us who are struggling at this time. Pray this through your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. 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 We'll sing invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus. Turn away from your sins. And we hope that you will come to the Lord your God with all of your heart. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?